We are back in the book of Mark to our series titled The Servant King. Will you join me in chapter 8, verses 27 to 38? And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. The others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will, be, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, hey, good morning again. Let me uh, join Nicola in just welcoming you. Uh, my name is Nate, serve as the pastor here. Um, so in uh, 1610, there's a guy by the name of Galileo, maybe you heard of him. He uh, published a little pamphlet, kind of rocked the world. It was preceded by some other works, but in essence, it helped to solidify that the earth wasn't at the center of our solar system. But the sun was. And it's hard to even explain the paradigm shift that that was in the 17th century. Uh, not only in science, but culturally, socially, uh, it challenged the status quo. It, it changed how everyone understood their place in this world. And we step back into the Gospel of Mark today. We started back in September, and Jesus though different in content, is no less paradigm-shifting. He challenges the status quo of who we think God is and what kind of life is worth living. Uh, or to put it another way, here's the big idea. Jesus shows us a confounding identity and invites us to a counterintuitive way of living. I say it again. Jesus shows us a confounding identity and invites us to embrace a counterintuitive way of living. So three things Jesus does to us today. Jesus confounds, Jesus rebukes, and Jesus invites. So let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, we pray this morning... Uh, pray that my, the words of my mouth uh, and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. You are our Lord, you are our rock, you are our redeemer. Uh, amen. So firstly, Jesus confounds. Uh, 
The Gospel of Mark is really about one thing. It's about the identity of Jesus. It's that question of who is Jesus. And our text opens at the end of lesson one. Uh, All of the first eight chapters have been about one lesson, and that is, the the, the answer is this, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, If you recall in the, the text that was just read, Jesus says to disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? What's the, what's the crowd saying? And they list off three, three individuals, John the Baptist, Elijah, some say the prophet. That's the who's who of the Old Testament. This is like, this is like NBA, LeBron James, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like, anyway, it's like, it's like that, or it's like music, it's Beatles, it's, um, I don't know, I'm not, anyway, sorry, we're going to go on from there. But Suffice to say, like, these are the top people, the who's who of the Old Testament. And when Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ. That means this, that they're not even close. That what people are saying about Jesus is not even close. Because the Christ is what all those individuals were pointing to. The Christ is this title, it's this long-awaited king, it's where all the promises are headed that this king is going to show up and make things right. And Jesus doesn't shrug it off. He doesn't say, oh no, that's, that, that's coming. He actually receives it. In fact, he actually adds to it, in a sense. In verse 31... He uses a title for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Uh, That may sound a little bit like Jesus is identifying with our humanity, which he does identify with our humanity, but the Son of Man is a title that comes from the prophet Daniel. And so listen for a moment to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, because this is what Jesus is referring to when he calls himself the Son of Man. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Notice that the vision is this, is the, God is depicted as the ancient of days. In other words, he's eternal. He's always been And the Son of Man comes before him, and this God gives him the whole world. And says, not only that, you're going to reign forever. So when Jesus uses the title, Son of Man, to the whole point of saying you're the Christ, Jesus is saying, yep, you got it. You have passed the test. Lesson one is complete. I am the Christ. And then Jesus goes straight to lesson two. And lesson two is this, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is confounding. Jesus is putting together two identities that were never put together ever in the Scriptures. On the one hand, he's the Christ, and on the other hand, he's saying he's the suffering servant of the prophet Isaiah. 
Mark's gospel, this question of who is Jesus, the answer presented is this, and it's absolutely confounding, but it's this, Jesus is the king, and he's a king with a cross. And from here on out, Jesus is no longer meandering in hills or on boats. He has one destination. He's going to Jerusalem. That's the last eight chapters. That is where he is headed. It's this pivot in the book. There's one place where he's headed. And he's going there not to overthrow the oppressive structures of the day, he's going there to be rejected and suffer. Jesus confounds. But Jesus also rebukes. You know, um, <laughs> you gotta love Peter, right? Um, if you read any part of the life of Peter, you know, he's the, he's the guy that like, you know, shoots first and aims afterwards, right? He, you know, and Peter rebukes Jesus. Look at verse uh, 32. And, and Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why does, why does Peter rebuke Jesus? Because Jesus is not fitting into his story. That's why. Uh, This is Peter's version. Jesus, you're the Messiah. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to overthrow Rome, and we're going to rule with you. That's the story I'm, I'm, I'm about. And so, Jesus, you just threw in suffering. That doesn't fit in my story. Listen, whether we realize it or not, we're all Peter. We're all Peter. We, we all have our, right, our little stories that we have, and as one pastor would say, we all try and fit, fit Jesus into our story. Um, Voltaire, a while back, said this, in the beginning God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And, you know, here's the point. Um, whether you are a Christian or you're just exploring Christianity this morning, one of the key ways you will know you have encountered the real God is when he doesn't agree with all your values, when he, when he contradicts your morals. That's when you're probably starting to get close to the real God. Jesus challenges Peter really hard. Um, In verse 33, look at what Jesus says. But turning and seeing a disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Uh, Jesus says, what you think is the path to freedom, what you think is the path to healing, what you think is the path to righteousness, the path to the kingdom of God, 
that's what man thinks. God thinks something very different how this is going to go down. You know, Peter's mindset, honestly, is, is something like this. The way, the, the way this world is going to get better is if the good guys beat the bad guys. It's us versus them. And friends, this is still the mindset of our day. We look out at the world, and we look around, and we see a particular group, and we say they're the problem. But notice what Jesus says. In verse 31, when he talks about suffering, he uses the word must. It's not an option for him. This must happen. And, and here's why. One of the suffering servant songs in the prophet Isaiah has this phrase, and there's, there's plenty that's in there, but it says that he must be wounded for our transgressions. Well, what does that mean? It, the end of the story, what the scriptures unveil is basically the king has to die for you and for me, for our sins. And do you get how that contradicts the us versus them mentality? Um, there's a Russian, Alexander, I'm going to murder this last name, Solzhenitsyn, I just did. But he has a, a book on the Russian gulag, and, and he was in the labor camps there for many, many years. And after 180 pages of recalling the atrocities that took place, again, remember, he's in the gulag, he's being oppressed. At the very end of it, 180 pages, he says this, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. He's not saying they're the problem. He's saying it is a problem, but he's saying Guess what? It cuts through every heart. And you see, this contradicts every story out there. See, the religious moralists, what do they do? They say, okay, just give me the rules. I can save myself. Right? Uh, live a good life. Then you'll be accepted. Jesus does not need to suffer in that one. Or there's the non-religious who might say something like this. I don't need to be saved. What matters is be true to yourself. Jesus won't fit that mold either. That's not his identity. Jesus' confounding identity doesn't fit any of our expectations, any of the narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus corrects Peter. Because the only way that this world is going to be rescued is if he goes and suffers and rises. And Mark is trying to show us, no matter where we are this morning, that this is the one we all need. So who is Jesus? Mark is giving us quite a unique version 
quite remarkable picture of who Jesus is, of who Jesus says he is. But he doesn't leave us there. Jesus lastly invites. Jesus invites us to participate in his life. Uh, Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice a couple things about that. But firstly, he calls the crowd, which means this is for everybody who wants to follow him. It's not like there's versions. It's not like you're team A or team B. It's not like this is your vocation or you're a professional Christian. No, this is everyone. And then secondly, Jesus doesn't force you to. Notice this. He says, if you want to come after me, he doesn't coerce, he doesn't manipulate. He won't grab your arm and say, come on. He just says, if you want to. And if you want to, here are the requirements. And it's a completely different way of living. Uh, It was a Copernican revolution then, and it is still today. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You know, let's just briefly pause for a moment and think about, in our own day, what other ways of living are there? Uh, Robert Bella, a sociologist, says there are basically two storylines in our Western culture. And the first is utilitarian individualism, which basically says this, you build a life of meaning and significance through achievement and status. Uh, A great example of this is the movie Rocky, which I realize came out a year before I was born, so most of you have never even heard of it, right? Maybe Rocky Three, No, nothing. It does, it's fine. There's like 18 of them, so you, you know, you're not missing much. But there's, a, there's, there's this line in the first Rocky where Sylvester Stallone is going to go fight Apollo Creed. Sorry, Sylvester Stallone plays Rocky. Got it? Okay? And, and Apollo Creed is kind of, you know, this, this amazing boxer fighter, and, and Rocky says this, if I can go the distance... And that bell rings, and I'm still standing. Then I know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Did you notice what Rocky's saying there? Here's my life. If I can just get in the ring, not get knocked down, or at least get back up, go the distance, then I know I'm somebody. In other words, my life is valuable based on what I achieve. And this is a compelling storyline. You know, think about it for a moment. We can build our significance on our grades or our popularity. Or we can build it on sort of ascending the corporate ladder or obtaining letters that come before our name. But in, in all of it, if that's the game, if that's the aim, then ultimately... Our meaning, our significance is on what we achieve. And listen, it's so easy to fall into that. 
I fall into it. Why? Because it offers status, which in some ways is not necessarily bad. But here's the problem with this, with this way of living. What happens when we live that way? Oftentimes, a couple things happen. One is we climb over people to get to the top. Or, here's another one, our relationships, as we walk around, we get really envious of others because we look at what they've accomplished. And all of a sudden, it's like, wait, are you serious? And, and all of a sudden, it creates a rift, right? Relationships break down. And here's the problem. In the end, when you get to the top, whatever the top is, as Jesus was saying in verse 36, if you gain the whole world... It's not enough. You get to the up to the, the top of the ladder and you get to the top and you go, wait, that's it? You know, um, one might say, and this is a little simplified, but this way of living is in essence, maybe the mantra could be believe in yourself. Okay? Very different when Jesus says deny yourself, right? The other storyline that Robert Bella points out is probably the one that's most dominant in our present day. It's expressive individualism. And this is you build a life of meaning and significance by looking within and living out what is your deepest feelings. You reject all kind of external given identities or traditions and you create a self and you demand the world accepts you as you are. And this one you know, shows up in a lot of different places. Think of... Um, couple songs, a couple movies here. Um, think of the, the, the movie Fantastic Beasts. Um, I don't know if anybody watched that one, but there's a black oscurus, this kind of magical parasite, kind of destroys things. And it only appears when a wizard or a witch suppresses their magical ability. So, right, the whole premise of the movie is don't suppress who you are. Live it out. Or, you know, here's a popular one. Elsa sings, no, no, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm not saying there's something wrong with Elsa, okay? Disney's, I mean, there's, okay, we won't go there. <clears throat> now, here's, think about this for a moment. Um, there's something very compelling about this story, too. Because it, it tells us that something we all long for, we all long for acceptance, we all long for it. But th there's, there's problems with this one as well, for it places the authority on our emotions, on our feelings. And one of the problems with that is, right, our feelings are incoherent often. I mean, this is a classic illustration, but like, I like ice cream, but I also don't want to be fat, right? That's contradictory. You have to make a choice. Um, you know, think about this. Your deepest desires are always changing. I mean, I can't tell you how often, I, I tell, say this a lot, but I'm getting older and I look back to my 35-year-old self and 25-year-old self and my, my desires, my ambitions are changing every decade. And I look back and I'm like, what a fool at 25, which means I'm going to be a fool at 55, 
which means I'm right now a fool. It's not reliable. How do you know who your true self is when your feelings contradict and are changing? Jesus, again, offers a completely different way of living. Instead of express yourself, he says, deny yourself. So what does it look like? This counterintuitive way of living. Look at verses 34 and 35 again. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Let me put it simply here. To deny self means to say no to self. To take up your cross means to say yes to Jesus. And to follow means to do it on repeat. You know, think about when you pull up your Spotify or Apple Music, whatever you do, and you put your playlist on and you hit the loop button. Just play it over and over and over again. Say no to self, say yes to Jesus, and do it on repeat. Uh, there was, um, a while back, there's a 13-year-old who um, began to, be, be, became a Christian, heard about God's love for her, his death on the cross put her trust in him, began to follow him, and as she was getting going, uh, one of the relationships for, for this teenager that was really challenging was her relationship to her mom. It wasn't an awful relationship, but it also could have been a whole lot better. And she was reading in the scriptures one day about this commandment to honor your father and mother. And she's like, I wonder what that means. So not too long after that, there was a... Um, party that she was invited to. She went to her mom and dad said, hey, can I go to this party? Mom's like, well, where is it? Oh, it's at that house. Um, no. And in that moment, this teenager finally understood what it meant to follow Jesus, to honor your father and mother. You know what she did? Even though she didn't want to, she said, okay. Okay, Mom, I won't go. Now listen, uh, some of us here, we look at that and that's kind of silly, right? But put yourself in a 13-year-old's life and to not be able to go to a party, especially in our day. I mean, it's going to be all over social media. You're not going to be there. The relationships that could have been formed, the times that could have been had, and you're staying home. But that's it. And listen, this is, this is what's so simple and profound. To follow Jesus, it could mean going across to another you know, continent and living for the sake of the gospel there. But don't you understand, what Jesus is calling us to is in the everyday gritty moments of our lives. And some of you parents are like, I hope my kids become a Christian and they honor me because this is wonderful news. But then do you understand what that means for you, right? Like, think about it. This is going to disrupt your, your checkbook or Venmo, whatever it is today, right? This is going to change how you spend your money. You... You're not going to deny your neighbor, take up your comfort, and live out your dreams, as one pastor would say. It'll change how you spend your money. It'll change how you spend your time. It'll cost you. 
It'll change, it'll change how you deal with your sexuality. Jesus offers a confounding identity that invites us to a counterintuitive way of living. And here's the question. It's the question I've been asking myself all week. I'll ask you, do you want to follow him? Jesus offers us two final considerations in our passage. Look at verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, um, have you ever heard one of those things where they'll tell you, if you invested in Apple back in like 1985, what, you're, you know, like what it would be worth today, and you're like, oh, I should have known, right? Uh, Jesus is doing that right here. It's not Apple though, right? Uh, Jesus is saying there's other ways to live. It might be utilitarian individualism, believe in yourself. It might be expressive individualism, express yourself. But in the end, Jesus says, you'll forfeit your soul. It's not worth it. You could have had Apple in 1985, but now you don't have enough to pay for it. Uh, There's a legendary, um, well, Johnny Cash, legendary musician, in 2002, he covered the song, Hurt. It was originally written by Nine Inch Nails, and the music video, which, by the way, you should all look, like, just YouTube it after this. Not now. Please wait. Um, it's actually talked about being one of the greatest videos of all time. And in it, you see a montage of Johnny Cash's early years, his kind of, his, his ascendancy, and then towards the end, you see it all withering. And it was filmed in 2003, just months before he died. And in fact, at one of the moments, there's actually two different moments where his wife is staring at her husband in the video, and she died in May of that year. And at, at a couple points, Cash sings this moment, he, he sings this lyric, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. All of his achievement, he says, you can have it. Friends, do you understand that in Jesus, you have a status that nothing else can come, come close to. Do you understand that in Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross, you can, have an, you can be accepted by the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who matters, the thing you long for in him. And here's the point. On that day when he returns, his status and his acceptance is all that matters. 
Second consideration Jesus gives us in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. Uh, It's a sober warning. In a world where there is competing narratives, living out a life of denying self, of saying no to self, saying yes to Jesus, living for him and for the gospel, it can be tempting to put your head down and stay quiet. I mean, as, you, as, as Mark is writing this gospel, he's writing to some Christians who are in Rome and they're the minority. They don't have any power, don't have any status. And he's trying to say, don't be ashamed of Jesus. So the questions of Mark's gospel are really two. It's just, who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian exploring Christianity, I just want to tell you it's the most important question of your life. The second question is, do you want to follow him? As we close, let me offer one final consideration. Notice this. This counterintuitive way of living begins with the confounding identity of Jesus. And what I mean is this. Consider that all that Jesus asks you to do in following him Do you not realize he has already done that for you? That's the message. He has lost his life for you. He has given up his life. He went to the cross and he's not ashamed enough to even, he puts on your sin, on his shoulders. He's not ashamed of you. He will not be ashamed of you. He will not renounce you. That's why he goes. And don't you realize that's the key? You've got to see Jesus for who he is because you get him who's come to get you. Listen, the rest of Mark, he's going to Jerusalem. He's beelining it. You've got to understand it's because he loves you. And that's exactly what enables you to say no to self and yes to him. You get it? You don't say no to yourself and yes to him to earn his love. No, 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 no. It's the opposite. He comes after you. And you are gripped by that. And you are changed by that. Um, Martin Lloyd Jones, he's one of the most well known preachers of the 20th century. Some of you may not realize that before he became a pastor, he was in med school. And he was well on his way. I mean, uh, he was actually apprenticing under a doctor that was responsible for members of the royal family in Great Britain. Uh, he was taking care of people of parliament. I mean, it was, he was dealing with the people who had the position, had the power, had the status. And as he was doing this, he actually found, uh, he was getting this call to ministry. And, and so he left med school. He left that whole thing. And then he went to a small rural village in Wales for his first pastorate. And he found himself among like simple fishermen. It was, it was like the blue-collar people. And at one point, uh, someone asked him, hey, like giving up medicine, going into ministry, man, wow, what a cost. 
And here's what Lloyd-Jones said. He said, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I counted the highest honor that God could confer on any man to call him to be the herald of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the point of that story is not that you should give up your vocation and go into the pastorate, although we are looking for a church planner, so talk to me if you're looking about that. Uh, but the point is this, that he's worth it. Jesus, you are confounding, and you are the one each of us needs. We praise you that you have given all of yourself freely for us. Please give us grace and wisdom and the courage we need to follow you. Help us to say, I am no longer my own, but I am yours. In the name of the Father, Son, Spirit, we pray. Amen.